Good day to you. Another episode of Falking Around, the Carl Falk podcast. I, of course, am Carl Falk, formerly of the radio here in Rochester, and now brought to you through the magic of the internet via podcasts available anywhere you can find all the cool podcasts. Please listen, pass it on that it's out there. Numbers are doing well, but we always want more listeners. You can hit me up at Carl Falk 2 on Twitter. If there's something you want me to talk about, questions, whatever, feel free. I'd love to interact with you that way. Good week this week because we actually had some sports. You know, eventually I'm going to get out of my house. Well, I'm get out of here occasionally, but get back into our studio, have guests on and do all these things and talk about live sports. We don't know when that eventually is. We just know it's not right now. And right now, this week, there was a couple things that happened that were, like, real. And that was pretty cool. We'll talk about the golf match and the fact that that actually took place. It was NASCAR this weekend, which if there's no sports and there's NASCAR on, it's like the tree in the forest. Were there really sports? Let you argue about that. In my opinion, probably not. But a lot of people like NASCAR Sports with no fans are going to be the new norm. We understand that, but we certainly at least had something to watch. But the thing we've all been watching, or most of us have been watching, is The Last Dance, the ESPN documentary about Michael Jordan in the 97-98 Chicago Bulls season. And, you know, it ended Sunday night the way we knew it would, with MJ holding it up there after hitting the shot on Brian Russell and the Bulls win their third championship in a row, six and eight years. Of course, they didn't win the two years that MJ was fooling around playing baseball. But this documentary was a great, great thing at the perfect time. There's been a lot of talk now. What's next? Who, who should we do next? The 90s Cowboys, which Aikman Irvin and Emmett Smith, but all the other characters and all the partying and all the things that went on, that would that be interesting? Shaq, Kobe, Lakers, how would that play out? How about the Yankees with the core four? Jeter and Jordan, persona-wise, not career-wise, though Jeter's career certainly unquestioned, they're a lot alike in that they were very driven to be the best and very driven to win at all costs. Maybe that would be the thing. Whatever it is, whatever the next thing is, I'm looking forward to it because this I thought was great. And, you know, as, as you break down the final episodes, first there was the Bulls getting by the Indianapolis Pacers. And that in itself was really interesting to me. That Pacers team was loaded. Reggie Miller's a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest shooters of all time. And in my opinion, the best basketball player ever at moving without the ball. If you're a good shooter, you should watch Reggie Miller video, how he got himself open. The best I've ever seen at doing so. Reggie and Jordan, and if you hear Reggie, he's on the Dan Patrick show quite often. They didn't see eye to eye. And I think there was a lot of respect there. And I know Reggie has talked about the respect he has for Black Jesus or the that cat, the black cat, as he referred to MJ. But I don't know that the respect went back and forth with Michael to Reggie Miller. You had Mark Jackson, who's one of the all-time assist leaders in the NBA. You had Rick Smith, a big guy in the middle and at a time when 
basketball went through the big guys. You had the Davis boys, Antonio and Dale, big physical power forwards. You had Jalen Rose, Travis Bast, Austin Crozier coming off the bench. Larry Bird was their coach. This was a great team. And that battle was fantastic. And how they went back and forth. And to me, watching that brought back so many memories of those series and how great they were. And, of course, then it's on to Utah. Utah for the second year in a row. Brian Russell, who had said some things when MJ wasn't playing. Carl Malone, who won an MVP, even though he deserved it. But did did he deserve it more than MJ? MJ didn't think so. So there were always somebody on the list. But how loud that stadium was, how loud that arena got, and, and, and the fans, the way they acted. It, it was always – playoff basketball in Utah was different. You, know, you think about Utah, what else do they have? It's the one thing – that they really have big time is the Utah Jazz. And they support them, and they support them loudly. And that, to me, made a big part of that series great. And, of course, you had other elements, the Jordan flu game. Now, let's face it. It's always been rumored that that wasn't a flu game. It was a hangover game. That Jordan was partying too much, and that he got drunk the night before and was throwing up all day. And if you're somebody who's had a couple, you know what he was going through. You know the day it was. It's just not a good day. You can't wait till the day after that day because then you're going to get back to normal. This documentary laid it out that it was the pizza game. And five guys showed up delivering a late-night pizza to MJ's hotel room. And that the pizza was bad. MJ was the only one who ate it. Security guys, his trainers, they were with him. They all said the pizza looked a little funny, but MJ ate the whole thing. All right. I get it. It could have been the pizza, and they could have done something to the pizza. Hearing the pizza story kind of reinforced to me it was a hangover game. You think about it. If you've ever drank too much, you get back to a hotel room and, man, I'm hungry. Go for a pizza. Pizza showed up. It's terrible pizza. But do you care? Of course not. Eat the whole damn thing. You love every minute of it. It's fantastic. So you had that. You had Pippen once again dealing with some injuries at the end and MJ having to carry the team. Some of the sequences. It it was just really well done. And there were a lot of things about this final season that really hit me. You know, Carl Malone going on the the. Bulls bus after the Bulls won it to, to seek out MJ. Classy. Very cool. MJ coming out of an interview room first against the Pacers and seeing Reggie Miller and shaking hands and, you know, respect there. But not no words. Similarly against the Jazz, Malone and Stockton waiting for their turn to go in. MJ comes out and, you know, same thing. But I think my favorite interaction was after the Bulls beat the Pacers, and the Pacers are going home. And I mentioned Larry Bird was the coach of that team. And Bird was one of the greatest trash talkers ever. Bird and Jordan see each other in the hallway underneath the stadium, walk up, embrace. Bird's got a big smile. MJ's got a smile. And Bird's 
words, four of them. That was it. Four words. You bitch. Fuck you. And laughing, they hug, and Bird walks away. I see you down the road. All right. Yeah. It just, that was a moment to me that's about as real as it gets. Two guys who just have respect for each other, know each other, like each other, compete against each other. They'll sit down and have a beer and talk about the games that they had, the the matchups that they had. They love the competition. I, I just thought that was maybe as real of a moment in this documentary that there was. And I, I think part of me says that because, remember, this was something that Jordan controlled. MJ took ownership of this video, of this documentary. He allowed the videos to be shown. He, I'm sure, let some things not be shown. There were people and things omitted that if you're a Jordan historian or fan, however you want to say it, you were probably wondering, hey, where, where's this guy? Where's that? Now, Horace Grant, there wasn't very much Horace Grant. And Horace and MJ didn't always see eye to eye. They played well together, but they just didn't see eye to eye that way. They didn't have that. And MJ used to ride Horace Grant. And they weren't always on the same page. Now, there was a talk that Horace Grant was the guy that leaked stuff to the writer who wrote the Jordan rules, and that's maybe what soured their relationship. But I thought Horace Grant should have had more. There should have been more Craig Hodges. <laughs> Craig Hodges was Steve Kerr and John Paxton before Steve Kerr and John Paxton. They all played the same role. They all played the same role well. The difference is that Paxton and Jordan and Kerr and Jordan got along well. Hodges and Jordan did not. And zero part of this documentary was Craig Hodges. And I thought, again, this is MJ maybe controlling things and not whitewashing things, but you certainly want to be seen in a positive light. Howard Stern did a movie and a book, Private Parts, based on his life. Stern's the greatest radio personality of all time. What he didn't cover was maybe the most important thing that happened in his radio career. Stern was fired from a Washington radio station, and that's how it was presented in the book and movie. He was fired from a radio station in Washington. The reason he was fired is an airplane had crashed into the Potomac River. And literally, while they were pulling people, and if you've seen the video, you can visualize, they're pulling people out of the icy water of the Potomac, saving lives for people who just were in a plane crash. Howard Stern was on the air. He called the airline on air, asked how much is it for a one-way ticket from, I think it was Dulles Airport, to the 14th Street Bridge, one-way ticket. That got him fired from the Washington, D.C. It was a huge moment in his career. It was mentioned, but it was glossed over. One of the biggest moments in Jordan going from the guy who was the scorer, who was maybe not the greatest teammate, to becoming the ultimate leader, was Jordan's treatment of Dennis Hobson. Dennis Hobson, Hobson was a good player. 
who played at Ohio State. I think he was the fourth overall draft pick of the Nets. Ends up getting traded to the Bulls. He was a two-guard like MJ. Every day they went against each other in practice. Every day, MJ rode Dennis Hobson, beat him down to the point where he ran him out of the league. He didn't build the dude up. He ran the guy out. And, and you know, many Jordan supporters will say, well, that's because Dennis Hobson's weak. Well, the greatness of a leader and Phil Jackson, and for example, is how to reach each guy. Jimmy Johnson, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys, used to talk about you have to treat every person differently because not everyone reacts the same. So your job is to figure out how to get to that person. MJ had one speed, one move, if you will, when it came to treating people, and that's pushing them. And the people that didn't respond went away. And early on, especially when there wasn't the talent base around him, that didn't work. And as he got older, he learned that. And we saw that in the documentary. Saw portrayed. But I thought it was curious that Dennis Hobson, who legendarily was run out of the league by Michael Jordan, wasn't a part of this documentary. The people who were a part of the documentary and where this comes down is interesting. You start breaking the characters now. Jerry Krause, for example. Krause came off as somebody who didn't have a clue of what he was doing. Well, let's give Jerry Krause credit. He was the one who drafted Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, made the moves to allow that to happen. He brought in guys like Steve Kerr and John Paxton to surround MJ. He did find Phil Jackson coaching the Albany Patroons in the CBA, brought him in as an assistant coach, went from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson to give the Bulls a chance to win. He did a lot of things properly. However, he wasn't about to let this team, and I think a lot of the reason now, he's written a book and unfortunately passed away before that book will ever be finished. But based on excerpts from the book, his fear was the team was getting old. And if they all got old together, they were going to lose anyway. They needed to get to a rebuild before they got old, move parts that had value, bring value back, and rebuild. And unfortunately for Kraus, he also made the comment that players don't win championships, organizations do. Well, Kraus and Phil, they wore out their welcome with each other. And he had tried for a long time to move Phil out of that head coaching job. And for the 97-98 season, they agreed. We're done. And they weren't going to go back on that if Jerry Kraus had anything to say about it. He wanted Phil gone. He wanted to bring in Tim Floyd. And I don't know why he wanted to bring in Tim Floyd, but that was the guy he wanted. He thought that was going to be the next great move. You, you know, a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the last dance, I came up with the what would Twitter do, WWTD. What would Twitter do to Jerry Krause? You win six championships in eight years, and through your own volition, you decide, we're done. Not because they got beat, because you wanted to move on. It's crazy to think about that. You have a championship team. Three years in a row. 
And this is basketball, not football or baseball, where you have huge rosters. It, you know, in basketball, two guys are 40% of your lineup. So two guys change a team dramatically. And yet, Krause didn't want to do it. I, I found it interesting. After they broke up the Bulls, the next three seasons, first season, which ironically, a 50-game season because of a strike, you think about an older team in a short season, Bulls, this would have been perfect to come back for one more ride, try for number seven. I mean, that's hindsight being 2020. But again, the Bulls the following year were 13 and 37. The year after that, 17 and 65, 21 and 61. They were 51 and 163 the three years after Jerry Krause broke up the Bulls. The Bulls did not win or play in a playoff game the remaining tenure of Jerry Krause's years as general manager. Jerry Krause came out to be the villain. And, you know, for every hero, there's a villain. Krause was that villain. And I think unfairly didn't get to answer back on that villain because of his untimely death. But, man, it's just looking back on it. How the hell do you break that team up? How do you just decide that the greatest coach in the history of the game, which is Phil, greatest player in the history of the game, which is MJ, and a collection of perfect pieces around them, yeah, we're good. We're moving on. We're not going to try to win one more time. And the Bulls haven't been relevant since. Other than a blip with Derrick Rose before he tore up his knee, that franchise has been a disaster ever since then. Remember the Red Sox had the curse of Babe Ruth for basically 90 years? I'm guessing the Bulls are going to have the curse of MJ for a long, long time. Scottie Pippen, how did he come across as this? And I think Scottie Pippen's the guy who you look at a couple different ways. One, you saw his greatness, and you saw the perfect complement. Not often do we see that. I think you had that with Magic and Kareem. I I think you see that occasionally. Shaq and Kobe weren't perfect, but they played well together. But MJ and Scotty were the perfect complement to each other, both mentally and on the court. And mentally, I say that because Scotty was somebody who could be pushed, but didn't want to be the leader. He was happy not having to lead. So there was that greatness there. But we also saw him not going in a game. It was somewhat petty. And I think that'll come back to her. Dennis Rodman. Rodman came across as exactly what you would expect. One of the greatest rebounders in the history of the game, if not the greatest. And a dude who, God bless him, He'd much rather go pound beers and bang Carmen Electra than go to practice or hang out. You know, the guy missed practice in the NBA Finals to go to a wrestling event in Detroit with Hulk Hogan. Who does that? Dennis Rodman does. He came across what we knew. Scotty Co- or Tony Kukoc was interesting, the way he was portrayed. And I, I would have loved to have seen more of Kukoc. Kukoc was a good player and Krause's boy. And I think that's where the friction between Scotty, Michael, and Tony Kukoc initially was there. But I think he became a trusted role player. But what's intriguing to me is if Tony Kukoc went elsewhere, how good could he have been? That was a talented dude. Steve Kerr, I thought, was interesting because 
Steve Kerr was a lesson in life. MJ tried to bully Steve Kerr like he bullied everybody else. And you couldn't bully a guy who's willing to stand up to you. And Steve Kerr did that. When MJ got in his face, Steve Kerr pushed back. Jordan punched him, and Jordan realized, man, I shouldn't have done that. And this is a guy stood up to him, handled himself, and then earned the trust of Michael. I mentioned Phil Jackson, the greatest coach. To hear some of the things, how he handled them, you know, we hear all the Zen things, but during Sunday's episode, during the timeout, you heard him cursing, dropping F-bombs. The Zen goes out the window when the ball goes up in the air. And I think that's important too. And while people will always look at Phil saying, yeah, he won 11 titles, but come on, he won five with Kobe and three with Shaq and six with MJ and Scotty. Is he really the greatest coach? Well, who's better? You know, Red Arback, there was Hall of Famers all over that Celtics team as well. To me, in an era of free agency, Phil Jackson is the greatest coach in basketball history. Maybe not the greatest X's and O's guy. Maybe not the best. Call a timeout. We got to get a play. Maybe he's not the best at that. But managing egos, managing people, and that's what coaching really is. Michael Jordan, how did he come across? Well, you know, we now know Michael's hit list. Isaiah Thomas, Patrick Ewing, Clyde Drexler, LeBradford Smith. Who knew that was there? George Carl, Carl Malone, Jerry Krause, Reggie Miller, Gary Payton. I mean, the list is so long. But what we saw with MJ was not only the greatness on the floor, and, and that was reinforced. And the MJ-LeBron thing, and that's now a done deal, hopefully, because I personally get tired of it. I appreciate greatness, so therefore I love MJ. I love LeBron. I, I think they're both great at different things. There was a poll this week about who was better, and they had 10 categories. And you, you saw how one-sided it was when they asked who was the better passer. And it was MJ. Now, MJ could pass, and he was a good passer. LeBron James is the best passing forward in the history of the game. Larry Bird, second. Michael's not even close to as good a passer as LeBron James. So let's not let our love for MJ cloud what we know about LeBron. Yes, it's a done deal. But to me, the takeaway for MJ is in this soundbite. Nice guy. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, winning has a price. And leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenge people when they don't want to be challenged. And I earned that right because my teammates came after me. They didn't endure all the things that I endured. Michael Jordan is down in pain. Michael Jordan got taken out. He's hurt. And Truck came down hard and is injured. Just as the moved on, it's really got a feel for this man right here. To be playing his heart out. Once you join the team, you live at a certain standard that I played the game. And I wasn't going to take any less. Now, that means I had to go in there and get in your ass a little bit, and I did that. 
You ask all my teammates, one thing about Michael Jordan was he never asked me to do something that he didn't do. People see this, and they're gonna say, "Well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant." Oh, well, that's you, because you never wanted anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. that I've ever watched in sports and amazing that the only two things in this entire process that got him emotional was the loss of his father and that right there, the perception from his teammates, if they didn't understand it, it was important to him not only to win, but to be understood as a teammate. And I think that's a revelation. To me, that's what I'll take out of this from Michael Jordan right there. The emotion of his perception as a teammate. Just a great documentary, one that I thoroughly enjoyed. I wish there was 20 more hours, especially while we're going through this, but fantastic stuff. ESPN deserves whatever awards they have coming their way for that production. Next is a couple 30 for 30s that I'm looking forward to, especially the one on Lance Armstrong that I believe starts this weekend. Very much looking forward to that. So great stuff with The Last Dance and how all of that came together at a time where we certainly needed something to watch and it it lived up to the billing in every way. Move on to football. Something that hasn't lived up to the billing in the last couple weeks is Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver arrested this past weekend. The Buffalo Bills' first-round draft pick last season, ninth overall defensive tackle, showed moments of potential last year's rookie, working in a system that Sean McDermott believes in rotation, so you'll never see him play every down. But last year, rotating in with Jordan Phillips, who had a nice year, but has now gone to Miami or has now gone to Arizona. And, of course, Star Latulale. This year was set to be Ed Oliver's breakout year. But he's going to miss a couple games, probably two or three games, assuming the season starts. Ed Oliver will be suspended. He was drinking and driving. Passerby called in that he was swerving, had an open beer between his legs. It was also a weapons charge as he had a pistol in the car. Look, for Sean McDermott, 
this is one of those things that doesn't work for him. Ed Oliver was drafted because of his talent, but also because of the guy, the potential of the person fitting the process. As McDermott and Bean have continued to build the roster of talent that they have, one thing has changed a little bit. They haven't looked for choir boys. They traded this year a substantial amount of draft capital to bring in Stefan Diggs. Diggs is a very good receiver. He's also a typical number one receiver, could be a prima donna. It's not always going to be easy to deal with on the sidelines. There have been decisions to bring people in who aren't necessarily the culture guy. I think the hope is that now with enough culture guys in the locker room and the talent base rising, that McDermott and Bean will be able to get away with some less character people to improve the talent. Ed Oliver, I'm not saying he's not a character guy. This may be a blip on the radar. But there's always a time in the NFL offseason that coaches and general managers tend to worry about their players more. Traditionally, of course, you have free agency, the draft, then you get into rookie camps, then you have mini camps. And then there's about a two-month period between the end of May and into the end of July when training camp starts where players are basically left on their own. And this is when you have general managers and coaches worry about their players. If, you know, and, and I love that people get so upset. Oh, the NFL, everyone's getting arrested. These guys are all criminals. Look, it's about 1% of NFL players who get arrested. And they say, you know, there's a race element when people get very critical as well. If you're a 21-year-old guy, you had millions of dollars in the bank and nothing to do. You wouldn't be out partying. Let's not be hypocritical. As a guy who went to college and didn't have much money, or by much, I mean any in the bank, I always found a way to get myself to the bars and have a good time and maybe get in a little trouble here and there. Nothing too bad. But you know what I'm saying? I, I just don't understand how people look at these young men and expect them to be perfect. In many cases, these guys didn't have a, anything close to a perfect upbringing, yet we're expecting perfection out of their behavior. There are some things that you look at and you go, wow, that guy shouldn't be in the league. Ray Rice, first image comes to mind. You, you see and hear that, got to go, never again. But there are other things that happen and you go, Come on, dude, be smarter than that. And I think that's one of these with Ed Oliver. First off, drinking and driving is the dumbest thing ever, especially now in the day and age of Uber. I know he was to towing his dune buggy around, but you got to be smarter than that. If you're that guy and you have those resources, pay one of your boys. Hey, I'll give you a thousand bucks. Drive me today. I'm drinking. Have a great time. Just don't be stupid. And I think this is one of those times. Not worried about Ed Oliver. Disappointing he's going to miss a couple games. I hope that it's only a couple games. And hopefully we're not revisiting this in the future. But there are things about this that now are going to come back. He's now going to be in the program. Remember, weed is no longer something that will be tested for in the NFL. So that's not a big deal. But. Once you get arrested, you go from being tested once a year 
to random testing whenever they want. So let's hope that that Oliver had a momentary slip up and he still can continue to fulfill the potential that I believe he has. Last week, there was an article about Sammy Watkins where we talked about young men with a lot of money and nothing to do other than party. And Sammy's time in Buffalo. First off, Sammy, and I just mentioned weed is no longer something they test for in the NFL. Whoever Sammy's getting his weed, if you're into that sort of thing, you might want to find out too because dude's belief system is above and beyond. He is out there. And I mean out there. The things he thinks, go on to Bleacher Report, read, you know, it's a long article. There's a lot to it, lots to unpack. But Sammy was somebody drafted fourth overall just before Khalil Mack. The Bills famously traded the following year's first-round pick to go up and get him. He spent his time in Buffalo on Chippewa drinking and smoking weed. And it's just one of those things, you know, I mentioned that Oliver. I hope it's you know, blip on the radar. You never know how somebody's going to react when they get money until they get it. Cause you know, money changes everything. It, it changes the way you behave. And again, if you're a young kid and all of a sudden you got all this money, guess what comes with money, friends and problems. Those two things show up immediately. And the friends, you might want to use air quotes because they might not be real friends. The problems, the real problems. Because you've got to be able to say no. And nobody wants to say no. Why say no when yes is more fun and better? It's just disappointing to see Sammy doing that. The NFL also this week did something that I find interesting. They're tweaking the Rooney rule. The Rooney rule set forth and named after the Steelers ownership group, Art Rooney, who developed this, concerned that there aren't more minority candidates in head coach positions and leadership positions in the front office devised the Rooney rule as it currently exists, that it's any opening for a GM or coach, the team that is having the opening has to at least interview one minority candidate just to give guys an opportunity. Well, this week, two tweaks have been made. One will be voted on, I believe today, the other is going into effect. Now it's you have to interview two people, not one, two. So to me, that's not a bad thing because if you look at a minority candidate for a front office job or for head coaching job, getting interviews sometimes will help you with the next job. Some people just don't interview well. You think about some of the people that you hear from in NFL front offices, some are very well-spoken. Some are very comfortable speaking on topic, and others just aren't. And I think the more you go through the process, the more it can maybe help you get there. But the second tweak, the one that's being voted on today, would say that if you have a coach opening and you hire a minority head coach, in the third round, your draft pick, would move up six spots. If you have a GM and you hire a minority to fill that GM role, you would move up 10 spots. You hire a minority coach and GM, such as we have in Miami, you would move up 16 spots in the third round. I'm all for advancement of people who are the best qualified in their field of work. And I think the key to 
getting more minorities into those positions is about opportunity. And that's why I really like the first part of the tweak of the Rooney rule. Opportunity, more interviews, more exposure. That's, to me, a good move. This is not a good move. And here I am, an old white guy, commenting on what should be good for African-American and minority coaches and general manager candidates. But while my inclination was that this was a bad move, three men who have much better opinion of this than I backed it up. Louis Riddick, who's an ESPN analyst who also was the runner-up to Dave Gettleman in New York for the GM job there, and I'm wondering the Mara family wishes they had a do-over. Louis Riddick talked about this and, and didn't accept that this is going to happen. This is not the way to go about it. Anthony Lynn said, though, you know, sometimes you're trying to make things better and you actually make them worse. And this is not something that's a good idea. Anthony Lynn, of course, the head coach of the Chargers and former offensive coordinator and head interim head coach for the Bills. And maybe the most respected African-American head coach of all time, Tony Dungy, not because he's the greatest minority coach of all time, but because of the person he is. Tony Dungy lashed out at this as well. This is a bad idea. This is not the way you increase the numbers. Again, it's about opportunity. It's about getting the people who are qualified in a position to be interviewed so that the people who don't know how good they can be will find out. This is not that way. You shouldn't hire somebody because of the way they look or the fact that you're going to move up five or six spots in the third round. It's just not smart. For a smart league, this is something that when I read it, I could not believe how bad this came across. I expect it to be voted down very quickly when that vote does occur. The league is planning to go forth. They released a schedule last week, and we know when things are going to get going and everything. We expect there to be a different time this year as far as fans. We expect there to be a much smaller crowd experience, if any. Well, I didn't realize this. The numbers of dollars brought in by the fans, in my opinion, are why fans are going to ultimately be back at games. Now, I'm not saying Sunday, opening day in Buffalo, there's going to be 70,000 fans at New Era Field. But when you look at the money, if the Bills don't end up having fans, Forbes did an estimate this week that they would lose an estimated $104 million this season. $104 million is a lot of money to anybody, let alone ownership group, the Pagulas, and I've talked a lot about them, that their other businesses right now are producing zero money. So $104 million would go a long way to making up for the fact that the Sabres lose $40 million a year, that they're not developing oil and gas right now, their hospitality businesses are basically shuttered. Yeah, $104 million would mean a lot to the Buffalo Bills. However, I want to throw this out there. The reason I'm convinced fans will show up, the number one team 
in fan revenue, and you could probably guess, game based on fans going to games, the team that would lose the most is the Dallas Cowboys. $621 million. The league would lose $5.5 billion. $5.5 billion if fans don't go. I think it's safe to say that there will be fans in attendance eventually, and it will be much sooner than maybe we're ready for or we expect. But when there's $5.5 billion on the line, the NFL is going to figure out a way. You think Jerry Jones is just going to sit back and say, I'm good, even though I'm losing $620 million? Not going to happen. So that's interesting. What I also found interesting was this. The Bills currently, with their $104 million in stadium revenue, if you will, the NFL has long said that the Bills need to develop a better stadium to stay viable. They need a new stadium because they need more revenue to come in to keep that team viable. This day and age, with the economic impact of the pandemic, the long-lasting negative effects of that impact, I don't see any state or county or local government coming up with hundreds of millions of dollars to help any billionaire build a stadium. I just don't see that happening in the next couple of years. So the fact that the Bills may have wanted to build a new stadium and it may have started construction, who knows, in the near future – I don't see it happening, but I found this interesting. Three teams currently have less stadium revenue than the Bills. Those three teams, predictably, the Bengals, the Chargers, and the Raiders. Now, the Chargers played in that soccer stadium. They're obviously going to have a very low stadium revenue. The Raiders playing in the black hole, but now they're going to Vegas, so their stadium's going to change. The Bengals, small market, but a relatively new stadium. But I found this interesting. The Bills' $104 million stadium revenue is behind not much. The Colts, $112 million. The Browns, $113 million. The Lions, $117 million. The Bucks and Cardinals each at $119 million. And the reason I picked those five teams, they've all got new stadiums. They've all got the sweetheart stadium that the NFL wants its teams to have because that gives them that revenue. So the Bills are going to spend a billion dollars to build a new stadium to increase their annual revenue by $17 million, $15 million to, to beat these teams? It just doesn't make sense to me. If you're going to build a new stadium to increase your revenue, that increased revenue should eventually pay for the cost of the new stadium. You look at Jerry Jones in Dallas, $620 million a year from stadium revenue won't take long for him to pay off that billion and a half dollars it cost him to build AT&T Stadium. At an increase of $20 million a year, it's going to take decades to pay off a new stadium. So I'm not sure a new stadium is necessarily going to be worth it for the Bills. And it'll be interesting, again, see how the NFL approaches this if they continue to pressure. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I think that if the plan was 
for a new build, I think that plan will be ripped up. And I think New Era Field will be renovated at a much lower cost. And that is the much more likely scenario now. And I don't think anything happens for a couple of years. I'd actually expect and hope for a lease extension because the Bills lease at New Era Field runs out after the 2021 season. So something certainly to keep an eye on. You, know, you can't talk sports without money in this day and age, and especially during this pandemic. And Major League Baseball is trying to figure out a way to get things started. Last week, Blake Snell, Cy Young winner for the Tampa Bay Rays, came up with a statement that made him the face of the selfish ball player. Listen to Blake Snell, and then I'm going to react to it. No, I'm not splitting no revenue. I want all mine. Bro, y'all got to understand, too, because y'all going to be like, bro, Blake, play for the love of the game, man. What's wrong with you, bro? Money should not be a thing. Bro, I'm risking my life. What do you mean it should not be a thing? It 100% should be a thing. If I'm going to play, I should be getting the money I signed to be getting paid. I should not be getting half of what I'm getting paid because the season's cut in half on top of a 33% cut of the half that's already there. So I'm really getting like 25%. On top of that, it's getting taxed. So imagine how much I'm actually making the play. You know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't making shit. And on top of that, so all that money's gone. And now I play risking my life. And, and, what, and if I get the Rona, on top of that, if I get the Rona, guess what happens with that? Oh yeah, that stay, that's in my body forever. That damage is not gonna be like, the damage that was done to my body, that's going to be there forever. So now I got to play with that on top of that. So y'all got, I mean, y'all got to understand, man, for me to go, for me to take a pay cut is not happening because the risk is through the roof. It's a shorter season, less pay. Like, bro, this, yeah, man, I got to, no, I got to get my money. I'm not playing unless I get mine. Okay. And that's just the way it is for me. Like, I'm sorry if you guys think differently, but. The risk is way the hell higher and the amount of money I make is way lower. Why would I think about doing that? Like, you know, I'm just, I'm sorry. So in my head, I'm preparing for next season. And I'm preparing, well, I'm actually preparing for right now. But as if I'm preparing for next season. Like, it's it's super weird, man. More Twitch streams for us, that's facts. Because I'm just saying, man, it just doesn't make sense for me to lose all of that money and then go play and then be on lockdown, not around my family, not around the people I love, and get paid way the hell less. And then the risk of injury runs every time I step on the field. So it's it's just it's not worth it. It's not. I love baseball to death. It's just not worth it. So Blake Snell's put his face on this discussion. It doesn't help that he sounds like a spoiled kid who just put the bong down and started talking. All right. It, it doesn't help his delivery the way he comes across. But think of the message that he said. Let's let's take out the fact sounds like a punk stoner who isn't going to do something for reduced cost. He's in no way wrong about what he said. Is he selfish for worrying about his future earnings? I would say yes, and rightfully so. If you had a job 
that you had a potential to work this year at a much reduced rate from every other year. And you didn't have to work because you've made enough money that money right now isn't a big deal to survive. And yet working this year at that reduced rate risks you going forward to being healthy and having earnings down the road that could potentially set generations of your family up. I don't think it's selfish to be concerned about that. I think it's smart to be concerned about that. Again, Blake Snell's delivery sounds like a a spoiled little stone punk, but his message is correct. This is a personal decision. Now I said this a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this, that there are two types of ball players. Those who have made it and got their money and those who are trying to make it as a major league player. Mike Trout will make $40 million a year. Bryce Harper in the $30 million. Manny Machado, $30 million. Then there's the guys who are hoping to stay in the big so they can make that $600,000 salary. That's Now, $600,000 is a good salary. Certainly a long way from $40 million. The risks worth taking are completely different based on the revenue that you're going to bring in. It's like any other business. Rob Manford said this week that the, there's no baseball. Ownership in Major League Baseball, they will lose $4 billion. $4 billion. There's going to be baseball for that reason. And the owners, they don't care what Blake Snell or any other player thinks. Get out there and play. We need to get our money. What always blows my mind when we talk about things like this is how the fans always side with ownership. Your player, Blake Snell is selfish. I found it interesting that Mike Greenberg, who makes about $8 million a year, Mark Teixeira once signed a $160 million deal to play baseball. These guys have made millions of dollars. They blasted Blake Snell for what he said. Really? They got into contract negotiations to get those salaries. Was that selfish? Mike Greenberg took the greatest morning sports talk show off the air because he selfishly wanted an increased salary and wanted to be on TV, not radio. That's not selfish. Again, we always side with ownership. You'll hear when a guy holds out, man, he's selfish. Just go back to work. Take less money. Do it for the good of the team. Yet when players get cut because they're not performing up to the contract that was signed to them by ownership, we don't ever hear, man, ownership's selfish. You know, that, that guy had a nice run. Now he's not making money they get ri- or making too much money to get rid of him. Think of the Bills last year with LaShawn McCoy. They cut LaShawn McCoy because they didn't want to pay him $8 million a year. It wasn't worth that anymore. Nobody called the Bills front office selfish, but if Shady had held out, he would have been selfish because he's not a team guy. I've never understood that conception that the billionaires can't be selfish, but the millionaires, they're always selfish. So lots to look at with baseball potentially coming back. One thing that I found interesting this week about that was the proposal put forth by a guy I despise. I don't like Bryce Harper whatsoever. I think I started to dislike him, which may have been his first major league hit, which was a double. 
when he's running between first and second and he flipped his helmet off. Go, come on, dude. And that my dislike for the man has increased exponentially ever since. But hell of a ball player. Probably going to end up being a Hall of Famer if his career path continues. He's still only like 26 years old. He's been around forever. But when Bryce Harper wrote out a proposal for how about we do this, I'm thinking, oh, great. What's this guy want? It was great. Two, two divisions, East and West, old school NBA. You're an East team. You're a West team. Play within those. Set it up that way. Universal DH. Play 135 games. You play pretty much July, August, September, and half of October. You play to the point where you have an off day every other Monday. The league has an off day. But on the Sunday before that, you play a doubleheader, use minor league rules, seven innings. I just thought it was great. I really did. I, I, Bryce Harper, there's a lot more to it. Change the way I think about the guy. The player, I still dislike. But the guy's obviously a very thoughtful guy. And I think there's some elements to what he said that could really make the return of baseball, at least for this year. And who knows if and when and how it's going to work out. But I thought Bryce Harper really put forth some good ideas as to how to handle that. And finally, to wrap up this week, got to hit on the golf that Taylor made sponsored event that had Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, and Matt Wolf playing the skins game at the Seminole Club down in Florida. It was not great, but it was something live and competitive, so I enjoyed it. But I thought there was a miss in that there was too much of an announcing presence. You got a skids game. You got four dudes out walking a course. Here's what it sounded like, and then I'll tell you what I thought it should have sounded like. Ready to go. All right. Perfect. It's like first day back at school. Boys, let's have a good day. Yeah. Play well. Just not too well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you forget I've won two FedEx Cups that totaled at 25 million. That doesn't phase me, youngster. Nice power, Ricky. Hey, we got one. Thank you. Thanks, pal. I mean, if you think about it, the long drive plus the scan, we, I mean, we, we've raised the same amount of money. That's true. So, so they've got to be, they, they can't be, yeah. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. Is it all right? Is it up? We get a lunch ball after that sandwich? I got you covered, partner. Oh, my left. Broke left, like the last foot. I think my favorite part there was Ricky Fowler saying, uh, can we get a lunch ball after that sandwich? It's kind of the way we all play, right? Breakfast ball on the first tee. You know, you roll up, maybe tie your shoes, maybe not. Put a peg in the ground and hit it. They could have made this a very fun event. And frankly, I don't know why they had more than one announcer. Didn't need more than one announcer. These guys are mic'd up. The beauty of this could have been 
them just talking and having a good time playing golf. They should have sent them out, in my opinion, in carts, with music, beverages, whatever you want, and go about it. You kind of saw that from DJ. DJ played so fast, he was marking his ball with a tee. He looked like one of us, only obviously great at golf, when he went out there to have a good time. He was not taking it all that seriously. It, it was a contrived event at we're going to try to have it be something that people who love golf will respect. The guy who grabbed the pin, every hole, only one guy would touch the pin. He was a PGA guy or a guy who worked at the club. Khakis and a button down and 88 to – come on, man. Have a kid out there. Have somebody out there who's another golfer. Have – have like Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth riding around, heckling. There was so much opportunity for this to be fun, and it wasn't fun. And the players didn't look like they were having fun. Now, like I said, I watched it and I enjoyed it because there was a lot of competition, and it was the only competition I've seen in two months. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. But I thought it was a big miss because golf – again, opted for the tradition, the stodginess. You know, they kept talking about Seminole Golf Club, and all I kept thinking is, man, I want, I'd rather hang – as much as I love golf, let me go to the beach. The beach beyond it looked beautiful, and yet nobody was there. Just break through that row of bushes and go down to the beach and hang out. It was just another miss by golf. Because they're trying to make sure everyone understands how stuffy they are and how elitist they are. As opposed to, just let everyone go out there, rip it up, and have a good time. And I guarantee the golf would have been better. And I know the trash talk would have been better as well. It's just one of those things that they missed on. This next weekend, we'll see the Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Peyton Manning, and Tom Brady event. Hopefully, that will be a little more relaxed and a lot more fun than this was. It was competition. It was live. But again, a miss for pro sports. So that's it. Another episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. Pass the word. We'll talk next week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.